of Speaking, a monthly podcast on the spoken word. Episode number 29, June 2020. Ritual Speech. Hello and welcome to Palmyre Dialect Services. First up, guess that accent. Last time I played this clip and challenged you to say where on the planet the speaker grew up. Um, I was always interested in acting. I would do that throughout school and um, do productions and stuff like that. And then uh, got sort of more heavily into music when I started playing guitar when I was 15 and started singing. And um, I mean, those became really my main focus. And my... If you guessed Australia, congratulations. It was Ideas Australia 33, submitted by Idea Senior Editor David Neville. The subject, a native of Adelaide, was a transplant to Los Angeles, where Professor Neville's student recorded him. To hear the whole recording, search for Australia 33 at dialectsarchive.com. Now, here's this month's challenge. Very challenging indeed. Where did this speaker spend her formative years? My summer house is located in near located right next to the forest, so it's very nice during the summer to go to the forest and grab some strawberries. And I love my home. Get the answer next time on In a Manner of Speaking. As I think you know, I have spent my life training and coaching the art of the spoken word. Dialects, principally, but all aspects of the spoken word, in fact. I work with actors, politicians, uh, corporate executives, voiceover artists, public speakers of all kinds. Just go to palmy.com slash public speaking to learn a little more about that. My aim in my teaching and coaching is pretty standard. Uh, whether the uh, client is reading a text, reading a prepared text, or extemporizing, the aim is to make it persuasive, vivid, memorable, engaging. And mostly I'm selling one idea, the value of speech that seems to have spontaneity, that is authentic, original, freshly minted, as I like to say, stemming from the person, him or herself, and and lacking in apparent technique and contrivance and rhetorical forms. So uh, whether it's an aspirin commercial or a, a Shakespeare sonnet, the idea is to lift it off the page and rebirth the text through the brain of the speaker so that it seems fresh and, and motivated and with a clear objective. The speaker must seem to need to speak rather than simply recite a prepared text. So if I'm doing a Shakespeare sonnet, it's uh, let me not to the marriage of true minds admit impediments. Love is not love which alters when it alteration finds or bends with the remover to remove. I got a strong need to speak, and I've tried to lift it off the page and make it seem freshly born again in my brain, even though a million people have spoken the sonnet over the centuries. Now, of course, one of the pitfalls that actors sometimes fall into is that in order to avoid the appearance of contrivance or of any hint that they're speaking a written text from memory and in order to get away as far as possible from the sound of ritual speech, actors often use faux hesitation, thinking that that, that mimics real-life speaking style. 
terrible in a dramatic speech in verse, of course. So we would end up with to be or not to be. That 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 is the quit. You know, you can hear what I'm saying. That that attempt to be conversational and in the moment can lead to cliches. Similarly, in real life conversation, uh, we often hear a, a redundant stutter. I just did it then. You often hear a, a, a redundant stutter. Perhaps it's to ward off any dreaded accusation of eloquence, which has uh, become a pejorative term, it seems. So sometimes you'll hear, instead of, uh, I wonder if I could ask you a question, just one word after another without hesitation or stumbling, you often do hear, I wonder if, if I could ask you a question. I think that stems from either genuine uncertainty of what you're going to say next, or it could be a mark of false modesty or self-negation so that you don't appear to be too arrogant or too demanding of the listener. And it's become an off-the-shelf tool for actors, too, who wish to imitate that apparently unperformed way of speaking. So the famous inarticulate mumbling that's uh, often simplistically attributed to the method school of acting, it's, it's become an authenticity signaling device. Listen to uh, Marlon Brando in Streetcar Named Desire, his first scene. You must be Stanley. I'm Blanche. Oh, you're still sister. Yes. Oh, hi. Yeah, where's the little woman? In the bathroom. Oh. Well, where are you from, Blanche? Uh, I live in Oriel. Oriel. Oriel, huh? Oh, yeah, that's right, Oriel. That's not my territory. Listening to it now, it does indeed seem quite natural, but at the time, in the 50s... What a radical departure that was. What a break with tradition about the well-spoken line, the great diction of the actor that seemed to play even into film acting. Yet for this podcast, my mind has been drawn to ritual speech. I suppose that might be the other extreme from the highly personal, highly motivated, improvised extemporaneous speech when we're not reading a script the other extreme is is ritual speech although we seem to value the former yet it seems that there's a tremendous value society places on the ritual speech we often perform such speech acts as we might call them in order to sound rehearsed scripted recited collectively authored with the weight of society's authority to make it sound non-personal. I've always been fascinated by the common roots shared by religious ritual and drama. Most accounts of theatre history seemed to postulate that it arose out of religious ritual. In fact, the word tragedy arises from the Greek for goat song. It's so tempting to think of goats and sacrifices and try to make that connection with religious ritual giving rise to drama. I'm not sure how forced a connection that might be, but it's certainly tempting. Clearly, storytelling, drama, stem from the same impulses as religious ritual. 
We're told that the Greeks used to intone or chant on a steady tone the great tragedies, which would certainly make them sound much more like religious ritual. Now that I'm speaking on a steady tone, chanting my words. As a small child, I was always fascinated by the the power of religious ritual, and although I have really counted myself an agnostic, even an atheist at times, since my teen years, I was fascinated as a child by both drama and religious ritual. But shortly after my confirmation in the Church of England, I became dissatisfied with what I saw as the the empty forms of the liturgy, with no feeling, no thought behind them, simply an empty incantation, an empty recitation of of prescribed forms. That was certainly what I observed in the Church of England, which was highly formal, and the order of service was highly prescribed. So, you know, I didn't follow the church, I followed the theatre. But if we consider ritual speech, what we might mean by ritual speech, we're talking, I suppose, about oaths, vows, blessings, mantras, curses, spells, formal prayers, invocations, orders of service in a prescribed form, opening ceremonies, ritual atonements, coronations, inaugurations of office holders, declarations of sovereignty, formal sentencing of the convicted defendant in criminal courts, etc. So what actually marks ritual speech? Well, as I said earlier, I think it presents itself as being what it is. It announces itself. doesn't attempt to hide that it's a reprise, a recitation, a recitation, a repetition of a prescribed or traditional text. Often it's more style than content, perhaps. And perhaps it's the style that gives it power, especially if you chant or intone a sentence. It seems to have weight. Music is incontrovertible, as I'm fond of saying. You can't argue or contradict music. It has its effect on you, whether you will or no. So to the extent that ritual depends on the rhythm and the music of it, then it achieves a level of incontrovertibility that other kinds of speech can lack. It's clearly a formal act. Often it relies on invariability. If you don't say the words in the right order, exactly those words in the right order, then you've got it wrong somehow. I was thinking about a ritual like the rosary, common to both Islam and the Catholic Church and probably some other faiths, a ritual. Christian prayer, now I lay me down to sleep, I pray the Lord my soul to keep. Angels watch me through the night and wake me with the morning light. It's a sort of an invocation, an incantation. The the, the rhymes seem to soothe and, and ward off evil, perhaps. And the contrivance of the rhymes, the the unavoidable rhymes, tend to double the prayer's power, perhaps. It's spell-like, in a way. But in spontaneous speech, any attempt to rhyme would be very odd indeed. The oath that uh, is sworn in courtrooms by witnesses. I swear by Almighty God that I will tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God, you know. Or the affirmation, I solemnly, sincerely, and truly declare and affirm that I will tell the truth, the whole truth, and 
nothing but the truth. If I were to try to persuade you that I had self-authored that oath in the moment and that it was original to me, it's almost impossible to do. I swear by Almighty God that I will tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. It's, it runs counter. That attempt to personalize, get it off the page and make it personal is runs contrary to the purpose of the oath. Just as a sidebar, I'd been wondering how uttering an oath and uh, and swearing have both that holy, sacred, virtuous side, but also the profane side. I have no idea how that happened. In a black beard, swore a thousand foul oaths, versus I swear by Almighty God. How did... How did the sacred and the profane end up being in that same word? So uh, oath and swear both have, both have a good face and a bad face. Cursing, a righteous, sacred obligation that you perform on those who wrong you and your family also has that double meaning. So all three of those words, oath, swear, curse, uh, all, all of those are known as contronyms, I found out, meaning that they contain their own opposite meanings. They're sometimes called Janus words, J-A-N-U-S, after Janus, the two-faced Roman god. Wedding vows, very familiar form of ritual speech. I, Joe, take thee, Jane, to be my wedded wife, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish till death do us part. According to God's holy ordinance, and thereto I plight thee my troth. Sounds like a vow. Doesn't sound like real speech. It's slow, sometimes slowly spoken. It's got some archaic language. It's got the weight of archaic these and thous in it. Often we hear it deliberately recited rather than spoken freshly. You cannot and, and should not try to make it sound like spontaneous speech. It's deliberately literary in style, isn't it? You can't lift it off the page and make it sound freshly minted, which is what we want in drama. Spells. No expert, of course, but I have the feeling that a spell simply doesn't work if it's not performed exactly as prescribed. A spell should sound ancient. And with the power of all the other occasions that it's been used, as it grows older, double, double, toil and trouble. Fire burn and cauldron bubble, flit of a fenny snake in the cauldron, boil and bake. Eye of newt and toe of frog, wool of bat and tongue of dog. Yeah, the uh, witch's spell from Macbeth. Excuse me, the Scottish play. I shouldn't have said Macbeth, it's unlucky. Curses. As I've said, you know, we think of cursing as, as a profane act. But really, it has its origins much older in performing a sacred act, a duty. Eh? You, know, you think of Lady Anne's curse in Richard III. I've heard actresses attempt to make that sound fresh and self-authored. But really, it's, it's a formal act, a formal ritual speech act. When she encounters... Richard, Duke of Gloucester, she says, Cursed be the hand that made these fatal holes. 
Cursed be the heart that had the heart to do it. Cursed the blood that let this blood from hence. More direful hap betide that hated wretch that makes us wretched by the death of thee than I can wish to adders, spiders, toads, or any creeping, venomed thing that lives. If ever he have child, abortive be it, prodigious, untimely brought to light, whose ugly and unnatural aspect may fright the hopeful mother at the view, and that be heir to his unhappiness. If ever he have wife, let her be made as miserable by the death of him as I am made by my poor Lord and thee. So I'm drawn into a kind of incantation and a kind of intonation, a kind of chanting. It's a formal speech act. I'm invoking the Godhead in my holy quest for retribution on my enemies. A formal lamenting and, and keening also comes to mind. Ireland is, until recent times, a great subscriber to the necessity of formal lamenting and keening, done by paid professionals, often. And uh, Juno and the Peacock. Has Juno f formally lamenting over the body of her poor dead son, Johnny, who's been killed in the, in the Troubles? It's the, uh, one of the monologues I use to illustrate my Irish dialect. Juno says, Mother o' God, Mother o' God, have pity on us all. Blessed Virgin, where were you? When me darling son was riddled with bullets. When me darling son was riddled with bullets. Sacred heart of Jesus, take away our hearts of stone and give us hearts of flesh. Take away this murdering hate and give us thine own eternal love. Again, you're drawn into a kind of chanting, rhythm and melody and to resist that formal lament is to uh, forego the traditional power that the, the lament as a speech act had pronouncing sentence we all remember it from the movies the sentence of this court is that you will be taken from here to the place from whence you came and there be kept in close confinement until june the first and upon that day you will be taken to the place of execution, and there hanged by the neck until you are dead. And may God have mercy on your soul, right? So the judge is acting on behalf of society, reciting something that's been prescribed and used, and has the, the weight of law and the weight of tradition. It's a ritual. All these rituals have uh, invariance or close to it, invariance in the word order. It's like magic. It doesn't work if the word order is broken. And it's funny that, that invariance is common to both religious ritual and the performance of traditional classic texts. Even though I'm a great experimenter, when I direct Shakespeare, other than cutting a line here or there, I somehow hesitate to change the word order or to rewrite any section. It seems that I would be going against tradition to do that, as if the text itself is sacred. And I'm reminded that the ancient bards in uh, 
pre-literate times, committed the tribal history to memory and in rhythmic pattern language, both to ensure the purity of transmission one generation to the next so that the history wouldn't be rewritten. It's easier to remember patterned, rhymed, rhythmic verse than unpredictable prose. So purity of transmission is the, the root of this idea of invariance. But also, of course, the power of music is there in the rhythmic language to, to make it a sacred-sounding history. So I've been considering these two styles of speech, with the, the one that I seem to find myself coaching more than any other is, is the free, spontaneous, self-authored, original, personal, individual style, and the other formal, performed, clearly performed, intentionally performed, perhaps authored by an institution or by tribal history, invariable, often in an archaic literary style. So I guess I've thought of these as polar opposites, uh, but the more I think about it, and, and now that I'm thinking about it more closely than ever, these two styles are on a continuum. So they're not really polar opposites, but each is nested in the other. And I've been thinking, isn't a lot of conversation ritualistic? Obviously, it's not a religious rite. Conversation is not a religious rite, but a societal rite. When we engage in small talk. Good morning. How are you? I'm fine. How are you? Just fine. Good to see you. Good to see you too. How have you been? Fine. Pretty day. It is. It's a recitation of a familiar script. Small talk before big talk. Uh, establishing or re-establishing a relationship before more important controversial topics are broached. And to treat that text, to try to pass that text off as original and never before uttered would be crazy, wouldn't it? Good morning. How are you? I'm fine. How are you? Just fine. It's good to see you. It's good to see you too. How have you been? Fine. Pretty day. It is. <laughs> That's just kind of a little bit crazy. I've been doing a lot of side reading this month on this topic, and it's led me into some interesting places. I've been reading that autistic people's deficits are often proof of the ritualistic nature of small talk. And on autismmatters.org.uk I read the following, quote, In spite of seeming to have little useful purpose, small talk is a bonding ritual and a strategy for managing interpersonal distance. It serves many functions in helping to define the relationships between friends, colleagues, and new acquaintances. End quote. And then a little later, quote, These definitions make clear in different ways that the content of small talk is not the point. The point is a desire to connect. For most autistic people, however, the point of a conversation is the content. If the content is engaging, they will connect, Content leads to connection. It seems that for many NTs, neurotypical or non-autistic people, connection comes before content, so they connect with contentless conversation, and if that works, they will move on to sharing meaningful content, end quote. Fascinating. So maybe autistic people, some of them see through the artifice and ritual and, or simply don't see the point. Realising that not everything we say can possibly be original, and probably nothing we've ever said or will say 
can be completely original, I found myself thinking. Like someone working with a printing press, uh, back when you loaded typeface into the press by hand, you would have ready-made phrases called clichés to insert. So our discourse is full of those clichés, phrases that have been uttered a million times before. And of course, we, we don't listen and comprehend at the word level, we listen at the phrase level. We listen at the phrase level. We Somehow we recognize that as a phrase that's been used many times before. And uh, the meaning of those phrases has been collectively sanctioned by society and custom and tradition. And our comprehension depends on, on quick recognition of those building blocks. They're like old friends we're meeting for the thousandth time. So we don't have to scrutinize them fresh each time. We assume them to have the same meaning as they did before. So there's that habitual, conventional, maybe not ritual, but close to it, aspect of all conversation, of all speech. And then I started to turn these ideas on their heads and thought about performers who have used the conventional, habitual music of real speech, but overlaid it onto nonsense. Here's Eric Idle's gibberish sketch from Rutland Weekend Television. Ham sandwich, bucket and water plastic, Duralex, Robert McFisher's underwear. Plug rapid emulsion, sick custard without sustenance in Kipling Duff geriatric scenery. Maximizes press insulating government, grunting sapphire clubs, incidentally. But tonight, sandpan Bombay Bermuda in diphtheria, rustic McAlpine splendor. Rabbit and fat fat fui jugs rapidly, big bio rule liners must green gauges micturate with nipples and tiptoe rustling machinery. Rustically inclined. Good evening and welcome. Hello. <laughs> so Eric Idle is being extremely conventional in the music and rhythm of his speech. But of course, the content is complete nonsense. And of course, uh, any Brit of a certain age will remember Professor Stanley Unwin, who uh, made an entire career on speaking gibberish. Here's a little bit of Stanley Unwin, filmed at Speaker's Corner in Hyde Park in London, that sanctuary of free speech. And the sketch is called A Partly Satirical Broadcast, a play on a party political broadcast that the BBC used to produce. Here's Stanley Unwin. Now, the programme plan has asked me to make very clear in a most understandable and simply term folder for your ears for that joy. Now... What I want to start off with is the great joy of the philosophical thundermold insofar as the great thoughtless of people over this gathering here and the linguistic philosophy where through, uh, through the epiglotty and the special people and the killy seals and philolop in the watch there and the fall in their blood and the skin put round people over shoulders keep them warm in the winter because he loved his wife like, and kissy cuddly. But the moral of it is the thoughtless which I want to underline most for you. So gather it again. <laughs> So again, like Eric Idle, Stanley Unwin invokes the music and the conventional cliché melodies and contours of English speech, but exposes them for that satirically by uttering complete nonsense. He and Lewis Carroll were obviously kindred spirits. You think of the Jabberwocky. It sounds like real stuff, but complete nonsense. Twas brillig, and the slithy toves did gyre and gimble in the wabe. All mimsy with the bargoves and the momraths outgrabe. So I've come to see in the 
in the course of my research this month, that ritual speech and its, even its exact opposite, speech that's as close to originality as possible, both affirm a tribally held view of an agreed reality, to a greater or lesser extent. Because speech of any kind, speech, speech acts of any kind, must appeal to past associations with the building blocks of speech and agreed meanings from which fresh meaning can be derived. So we can't escape ritual. thought I'd end with Peter Quince, one of the rude mechanicals from A Midsummer Night's Dream, in his prologue to Pyramus and Thisbe. And, of course, the comedy comes from Quince's mangling the phrasing and the punctuation, turning complete sense into complete nonsense. If we offend, it is with our good will. That you should think we come not to offend, but with good will. To show our simple skill, that is the true beginning of our end. Consider then we come but in despite. We do not come as minding to contest you, our true intent is. All for your delight we are not here. That you should here repent you, the actors are at hand, and by their show you shall know all that you are like to know. Thanks for joining me. The clips I played were used under the copyright doctrine of fair use. Eric Idle's Rutland Weekend Television and the Stanley Unwin sketch, a partly satirical broadcast, are both copyright. The British Broadcasting Corporation. A Streetcar Named Desire was directed by Elia Kazan and screenplay by Tennessee Williams, based upon his play of the same name, distributed by Warner Brothers. Again, if you're a public speaker or just someone who wants to embrace the spoken word as effectively as possible, why not consider some training and coaching with me through a Zoom session? Don't forget to follow Paul Meyer Dialect Services on Facebook and me on Twitter, at DialectPaul. Next month, I'll be announcing a brand new edition of Accents and Dialects for Stage and Screen and previewing the new Accents and Dialects it will contain. So please join me next time on In a Manner of Speaking. <laughs>